Good evening, Saints. It is good to be back home. My wife and I have been on the road for almost a month, everywhere from Peru to where else we've been, Tennessee, and then to Hawaii. Somebody had to do it. And then we last weekend we were at our marvelous church plant in Los Angeles, Renew, Pastor DeHaan, and that church is growing by leaps and bounds, and we are very happy. They've been going now for a year and a half or so, and this past Sunday was their record attendance, 260 people, which is <clears throat> honestly for a church in that part of the world, it's nothing short of miraculous. And that team out there is just doing an incredible, incredible job. But it's great to be home. I want to start another one of my famous series that we will do until Jesus comes. And you know how that works. You know, it starts out with, you know, maybe three or four, and then three or four becomes three or four months. You know, it's just like, can we please talk about something else? And so I want to start a new series that I feel like has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, partially based on just what I'm hearing, but partially what I'm observing as well. But if I use this one word, change, change. Now, that word has a lot of connotations depending on who you are, how you're wired, what your history is, what your damage is from your history. For some, it holds hope and promise. For some, just fear and frustration. And yet, not only is life one of constant change, as disciples, we are called to constant change, constantly be changing via both intervention and interruption by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is very, very pleased to interrupt your life, to intervene in your life, particularly when you feel like that you are really doing it well, doing it right. And then the Holy Spirit says, let's chat. Let's, let's, just, let's just come over here just for a second. But this process of change, it is a lifelong event. And you get to stop changing when you stop breathing this air. And we know about change that, one, God does not. As much as you would like to change God to your understanding, your paradigm, to bring him down to sort of your level so you could have an, a face-to-face -face conversation with him, the reality is... God's not changing for you. Sorry. And you know, there are folk that try to craft their own God that sort of better fits who they want him to be. God doesn't change. James 1.17 tells us that. It says, every good and perfect gift from above coming down from the Father who does not what? Change like the shifting shadows. Malachi 3.6 I, the Lord, do not change. So there you go. One of the nature, one of the characters of God is what's known as his immutability. There's another big word you can impress your friends with. What does that word immutable mean? It means God does not change. God is the same what? Yesterday, today, and there we go. So the many things you cannot count on, but you can count on one thing, God is unchanging. Hallelujah. But you can also count on this. We do. Whether voluntary 
or mandatory. This process of life, there's a lot of natural change. And sometimes it's less than pretty. Could I talk about metabolism for a moment? Could I talk about the unfairness of the metabolic process? Of when you think that you have adjusted. Come on. I just want to get cranky for a moment. When you think you have adjusted your caloric intake. That you have cut out those foods that have become so near and dear to your heart. And then your body shifts again. And it says, nah, just kidding. Let's eat a little less and move a little more. And then it's just like, this isn't fair. I mean, my wife and I are getting, I'm getting older. She's not getting older, but I'm getting a little bit older. So we, we, we have this amazing conversation sometimes when we're not perhaps as limber and flexible and energetic as we were. And we, and it's just like we are amazed at the process that is going on in our bodies. It's incredible. I mean, look at Pastor Duke. He's 117 years old. I mean, the changes that he has been through are incredible. The great thing is that he can't even hear what I just said. And so I can pretty much just let it rip, just keep right on going. So, but there's change. And as much as there's natural change, Hair gets thinner. Someone said that, you know, it just it gets tired of coming out of your head. And gravity takes over. It begins to come out of spots that it's not supposed to because it just gets tired, all right? But there's a process spiritually as well. And yet unlike natural change, spiritual change is only initiated in the life of the individual. Aside from circumstances of crisis... By first acknowledging that change needs to even occur. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the one to to, to, to blow the whistle on that one. Of change. And this is why God gives a wife to a husband. Just one of many reasons. It's not just help meeting companionship and procreation. But you know, wives are marvelous agents of change. For the man by which that they are walking with in covenant relationship. My wife has been such a marvelous agent of change in my life. It's marvelous. And see, you know, she's got me so well trained now, she doesn't even have to say, are you going to eat that? Now it's just more just to look. She doesn't have to say anything. It's just, just a little look across the table like, you don't need that fourth donut. You didn't need the first one, but you certainly don't need the fourth one. But until we get to the place that we realize that something needs to shift, something needs to change around my life, and I'm not just talking about sin sick. Most of the time it's the consequences of sin that get us to a place that we realize, i got to stop doing this. A little bit like, you know, that, 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 that last time that you overeat or, you know, maybe in college, you know, when you were making, you know, covenantal promises with a toilet bowl after a, a night of revelry. 
There were a lot of promises made in those moments. Let me just tell you, I know you know nothing about that, but we'll move on. But the need to change is mitigated by at least two things. One, if you feel like you are already there, you've arrived, at some place or point of spiritual performance, change is not warranted. In other words, I'm good. I'm good. I'm not doing all these things written about in Scripture. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not stepping out of my wife. I'm not getting high on the weekends. All of the, I mean, so if you feel like you're good, guess what? You probably aren't going to be changing much. Number two is the requirements that would demand change. Who or what you're changing to in order to conform to, they must be lowered in order to come up to where you are. So in other words, I've got to take God, God's standards, and I've got to lower them to where I am in order not to order the change around my life. Are you with me here? I mean, so, and we do that all the time because we want to bring God down to where we are so that we can maybe, may, we can be equal. Now, we may not say that, but this is much of what happens as we relate to a holy, perfect God. And thereby, his requirements and his standards, they get a little squishy. They become variables rather than constants. Ephesians chapter 4 says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And he goes on and says, part of how we do that, be completely humble and gentle. Do you realize part of the way that we live up to that calling is we realize, first of all, in humility, I can't do it. Gentleness says, I need help, not I got it, back off. It's the need for change. And we do that by embracing joyfully the journey of that change. There's a Christian classic. It's an allegory. It's Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. If you've never heard of it, you just did. If you've never read it, get it. Because it's one of those Christian classics that everybody should have sort of read and tucked in to their systematic theology, if you wish. But the gist of it, we're all pilgrims, strangers and aliens, sojourners, not wholly at home, at home, whether in this body or in the world. Do you ever feel that way sometimes? My wife and I have checked into a lot of hotels in the past few weeks, and regardless of how, many of your, how much of your stuff you bring, it, you still realize this is not my bed, this is not my place. This is not my potty. I mean, there's a lot of things that this is, you know, it, it, I know I'm dwelling here for a moment, but this is not home. And that uneasy feeling that you have is the fact that you are a pilgrim. You are a sojourner. Is that that which God has called you to live in, guess what? This is not it right here. One of the tragic things for me for believers is trying to make this life the life. It's trying to pack it all in in whatever we've got, 80, 90 years, that this is it. We're not home. We're pilgrims. 
And then, though, there's a progress, that we're making progress toward a heavenly goal, regardless of how circuitous or perilous the route might be. And, you know, I think maybe one of the biggest insults that someone could ever say to us It's intended as a compliment, but I'm not sure it is, is this. You haven't changed a bit. I'm not sure that's a compliment. Now, I know many times we use it in terms of physical attributes. We know we go back to the class reunion and, you know, somebody hasn't exactly blown up like you have. And so it's intended to be a compliment, but, regard, but, but the reality is for those of us who are called into a different reality, a different, if you wish, standard in comparison, I never want someone looking at me next year and saying, you haven't changed. Particularly if someone hasn't seen me in some period of time to say, you haven't changed. Let me just tell you, I want to change. I need to change. And this is exactly what this series is entitled. It's called The Power of Change and The Power to Change. And we're going to be looking at a number of different things, and I'll just kind of give you the overview here. The first is definition and destination. The second is an explanation of the process. Third is participation. The fourth is motivation. For whom? are we changing? And the last is demonstration, God's power to change us. And let me just briefly just highlight these by way of introduction this evening. First of all, definition and destination. We have to first define the goal. Matthew 6 defines the goal. Seek first his what? Kingdom and, come on, righteousness. There we go. How many times do we stop because we want the kingdom, the benefits of the kingdom right now, but we don't want the righteousness that go with the kingdom? Let me help you, ladies and gentlemen. You can't have the kingdom and not have his righteousness. It's a package deal like two Twinkies that come together. You cannot separate them. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added. But you know, many times we key in on the kingdom, we key in on the other things, but we really don't place as much emphasis, I don't believe, on the righteousness part. And this is what a lifestyle of change brings us to. The destination is the kingdom. The question is how we get there. But the word seek means something active, pursuing something. Something is, something's moving around our life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. Actually, we'll just do verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful and who? He will do it. Amen? May God himself sanctify you through and through. He is faithful and he will do it. 
The word for sanctify, it's the Greek word, hagiosmos, which means the process of making holy. This is what sanctification is, and we'll look at this more in a moment. It's not an improved version of yourself, but the process of being made holy. And the ongoing process of change in the life of a a disciple, whereby the holiness, nature, character, and power of God can be readily seen. And you're going to hear me use terms throughout this series, and I'm going to differentiate between believer and disciple. Because I believe there's a decided difference in the two individuals. You can believe and never change. You have, if you're a disciple, you have to change. Let me say it again. You can believe and never change. There's a lot of folk, and they have their magic moment. They write their date down in the Bible. They got their, quote, fire insurance. That's one way of looking at the salvation process. But they don't feel any compunction whatsoever to move beyond that point. Yes, you can believe, and you can be a believer on the basis that you believe that God raised him from the dead, but you can't be a disciple and not change. And we're gonna, we will define that term over these next few weeks. Because one of the deciding things about a disciple, a disciple learns, he follows, and a disciple begins to look like that or who he is following. Amen? Meaning that if we are called to be a church that makes disciples, and we use that term like we we really understand it, we know what it means. But discipleship has to begin with you and with me by embracing a process of change in our life. Less like you, more like God. Sanctification, if you wish, is a manifestation of justification. We'll define that term. Justification is that moment. Well, let me me not go there. And we'll define some words, grace, we'll learn is not a blank check. Law is a good thing. You know, many times we look at law and we just say, whoo, law, thank goodness. I'm a New Testament believer. Jesus came and fulfilled it. That doesn't apply to me. Sorry. Yes, it does. Because there's no way you can understand the grace of God until you understand the fulfillment of that which Christ has done on your behalf. The standards were not eliminated. They still apply to you and to me. Legally, yes, Jesus fulfilled them. In terms of righteousness, righteous standing before the Father, yes, it's done. But there's still the ongoing outworking process of how this works. Lordship and discipleship. Who's following who? We'll talk about an explanation of the process. And there's a timeline in this, past, present, and future. We have been, that's justification. That is a past tense event. At that moment, that regeneration occurred, what is that? That's that moment that all of you, you've been dead and now you've been made alive. Some agency came and acted upon your deadness. 
You were blind, but now you see something happened to you that you could not do for yourself. That's the process of new life, regeneration. But in that regeneration, something else happens is that something is imputed, imparted to us. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which means now in that process of being made alive with him, guess what? Your standing with God as it involves righteousness, it has been affirmed. You can't add anything to it. It's not Jesus and, it's Jesus only. Please hear that well. As it involves justification, it's never Jesus and, Jesus only. That is past tense. It speaks to our position. But the second, we are being. We have been, we are being. That is sanctification. That is the process of change of which I'm speaking. It's progressive and it's present. But then the third, we will be totally. There's a moment where we no longer, again, breathe this air where we move from justification to sanctification now to glorification. And that is the perfect. That is the future. When we see him, what does scripture say? We will be, there we go. But in the meantime, justification past tense done we can stand on that you can take that to the bank glorification as sure as your justification was your glorification is just as sure in terms of what's in your future but it's that stuff in the middle it's that stuff of the right now of how do we respond well to this process this is the kingdom tension of the already and the not yet The kingdom is now, but yet not yet. I'm saved, I'm being saved. The hour has come, the hour is coming. I'm sanctified, I'm being sanctified. I'm a new creation, I await resurrection. This is the tension we live in as believers. And it doesn't mean that we have to get polarized theologically. The reality is it's in the middle of these things where we find what? Truth. This is where we find it. You've got the law on the one hand, and you've got licentiousness on the other hand, which completely abandons law, and yet it's somewhere, what, right in the middle of those two places where we find liberty. Hmm. And the theological confusion, which is deception, and the practical conundrum in this moment that brings confusion to this process and this timeline. You know, there's a lot of weird stuff floating around out there right now about grace. Really, there's some odd stuff. And quite frankly, it's not just error. You know, there's error and then there's heresy. Error is when something's a little off. Heresy is when it completely disagrees with Scripture and violates something deep in your belief system. And some of what is out there floating around, first of all, it's not new heresy. It's recycled old heresy. I'll talk about this more in another another session. It's just Gnosticism with a twist on it. That's all it is. Which basically says, you can do whatever you want to do, you're good. You're good. And you can see the outworking of it. It's sort of how how, how people are crafting their lives and how they're living, what they're watching, the language that they're using, the freedoms that they quote, 
quote-unquote, they begin to take and says, well, the Scripture doesn't tell me I can't. As a matter of fact, the Scripture tells me that I can, and yet they're missing the whole point of what this is really pointing to. There are those that hold that it's all been done. Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all. Therefore, any sin I commit, Jesus has already got it covered. Now, is there some truth in that? Some truth. But this is the problem with any error or heresy. There's always enough truth in it to get it to be sticky. Listen to me. It becomes a little bit sticky. And there are those that hold that everything's been done at the point of regeneration, negating the ongoing work required for us to manifest God in and through us. In other words, it's all done. Pastor Jim, you're trying to put the law back on me. I'm free. I'm under grace. God's already covered it. As it involves justification, yes, he has. And yet, so many times in Scripture, we'll look at this, the, the, the verb tent, be holy. I mean, we are, I mean, Scripture after Scripture after Scripture tells us that there's still something ongoing on the inside of you and me, which is pointing to less of us and more of him. And yet we still have to appropriate the benefits of the cross anyway. I mean, you could say the very same thing about healing. By his stripes, we are healed. Is it a benefit of the cross? Yes. But if God did it one time, why are there sick people? Why are there gifts of healing listed in 1 Corinthians 12? Why do we come to the front and have people pray for us for healing when there's sickness in our body? Is the cross true? Absolutely. But guess what? Like everything else in God, we have to appropriate those truths and appropriate, come on, that power. We have to bring what is a spiritual reality into the temporal moment. We do it with healing. We understand it. We do it all the time. Authority over the enemy. He made a public spectacle, it says, over them at the cross. How many of you have ever had to do a little spiritual warfare? Come on. But Jesus did it. Did he not? Public spectacle, all things under his feet. And yet, I don't know about you, but I've had one or two things I've had to swat away in my lifetime. Hmm. Breaking of curses. And yes, the grace of change and the power of change has to be appropriated. And this extreme outworking of licentiousness, which justifies all behavior, is already forgiven or already covered. Let me just tell you, there's no understanding whatsoever of the grace of God. Let me tell you something about the grace of God. When you understand it, it's so precious, you never want to abuse it. Ha, there's grace. Pastor, now I'm doing anything I want. Grace of God, he's got it. He's covered. You don't understand grace. I don't know about you, but I never want to presume upon something that cost God his son so that I can just continue to do whatever it is I want to do when I want to do it. Hmm. Moving on. Participation. What is our role in this thing? Okay, Pastor Jim, great. You've almost convinced me I need to change a little bit. But if God's done it, what, what, what is my role in it? Do I have to do anything 
Romans 6 tells us this, 11 through 14. It says, count yourselves what? Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Who does that? You do it. It says, you count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin. It goes on here. And so there's some things here that God is, that, that Scripture has revealed to us as to how we participate with this process, participation, motivation. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, we make it our goal to please Him, whether at home in the body or away from it. Ephesians 5 8 says, Find out, excuse me, 5 10, find out what pleases the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4. Brothers, live a life in order to please God. Let me just tell you. When you live a life with the motivation of pleasing God, you're going to be all right. It's going to be all right. But here's the challenge. Oswald Chambers says it this way. Quote, God has one destined end for mankind, namely holiness. His one aim is the production of saints. God is not an eternal blessing machine for man. He did not come to save men out of pity. He came to save men because he's created them to be made holy. Wow. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be what? Holy and blameless. He predestined us to be adopted as sons in accordance with his will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 again, verses 3 through 8. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable. Let me ask you a question. If, if sanctification weren't important, if it were something that was a one-time event lumped in with justification, why in the world would the writer here telling us that we need to be sanctified? He's speaking to what? Right now. The realm in which we live. But this brings the real question of love. Real agape love. It's not just why I do a thing, but it's for whom do I do it. Not just why, but for whom? Is it pleasing God or self? You know, many times we can even go through righteous acts and actions. And we do it because it makes us feel good. I serve because it makes me feel good. Someone pats me on the head. They say, thank you. You're amazing. I give some money. I feel good. Because of this act of sacrifice that I'm doing in this moment. But guess what? You just got your reward. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but please God. It's not about I want to be a better person. Congratulations. Get a life coach. Go to the gym. Get a nutritionist. Go back to college. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we can, quote, do what? Improve ourselves. 
I mean, pick up, any, pick up anything today and look at the list of things you can do to be happier and more successful. I mean, you can find a list somewhere. Everybody, everybody's got a list. I want to be a better person. But the Spirit's work of sanctification in our lives extends beyond behavior modification and sin management techniques. And if it doesn't, then a type of Bible-based moralism. Now, let me say, in the absence of real spirit sanctification, I would take some Bible-based moralism. Hello? Come on, Mom and Dad. I mean, won't you take some Bible-based moralism in your kids? Nod your head. Absolutely. It's better than the alternative, is it not? And yet I see this tragedy, even in great Christian parents, that they settle for moral kids rather than spiritual kids. They figure out, how can I exact and enact moralism in my children rather than relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to change them from the inside out? Rather than me trying to change them from the outside in by putting some pressure on their backsides. Mighty quiet in here tonight. (laughs) Bible-based moralism, again, not a bad thing. But invariably, what does it produce? Both pride and narcissism. Because it says, I can do this. I can keep this law. I can keep this rule. I don't like pork chops anyway. I'd stop eating hog meat. It's not a problem. But this is where we get moral yet decidedly unspiritual and fundamentally unchanged church folks. Oh, they're moral. They look good. I mean, they got it cleaned up on the outside. The only problem is they're not really fundamentally changed on the inside. You know, Jesus dealt with some folk exactly like this. I hate to even use the word, but he talked about, you know, you got the outside thing going on. Man, you got, man, you are keeping those 613, but man, you just, points to the law, you looking good, champ. Only one problem. You rotten on the inside. This is not about an improved version. Scripture says he makes all things what? New. You can't be new and improved. Think about that for a moment. You can't be new and improved. If it's being improved, it means it's a better version of the old thing. New means it's a new thing. And yet, this is the mystery of sanctification, is that God takes something old, but he's making something completely other and something completely new from the old man into the new man, the old nature to the new nature. This is the mystery of what I'm talking about here. And yet, while a lifetime process sanctification does as a byproduct, hear me, do we get improved? Yes. Praise God. I'll take that. I don't mind some improvement externally, but this is not the only goal. It's just a self-improvement program. Ultimately, this sanctification process serves to transform us into something completely different. 
And listen to me, saints. In an increasingly post-Christian world, and yes, we are. You say, that ship has sailed. In an increasingly post-Christian culture, You've heard me say this before, but let me say it again. The world is not looking for a, 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 a greater, a more moral, a better version, a nicer people of themselves. They're looking for something wholly different. Listen to me. Different. Those folks that flocked to that Acts church, they weren't seeing a, a, a different version of themselves. They were seeing something brand new. Energized by Pentecost, yes, but there was seen community rise and they'd never seen anything like this before. And they were afraid of it, but they couldn't stay away from it because of the energized power of the Holy Spirit that wasn't just allowing them to sell property and give to one another and care for one another and love one another and eat, you know, go home to house to house. Yes, but let me just tell you, there was something fundamentally different in these individuals foundationally different because the power of God had gotten hold of them. And I'll just mention this one. The demonstration is the Holy Spirit as agent of change. I don't know about you, but I've tried to change a lot in my life. Not going to do that anymore. Not going to eat that. Not going to think that. Not going to watch that. We... I mean, that's why the diet industry, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Bam. It's why everybody will go out and buy an exercise machine in January. And that's why March, it will be, be an expensive clothes hanger. Drying rack in your basement. Because we want to work something up. And I got to tell you, I have spent so much of my life failing at the change business. I'm not talking about just missing a little bit. I'm talking about abject failure. Because I've tried to do it outside of the person and the power and the agency of the Holy Ghost. This is what makes change work in your life and in my life. And it's realizing our helplessness to evoke real change that the Holy Spirit becomes that great catalyst in the life of a disciple. We rely on something, someone on the inside of us. Not just to speak to us, guide us, empower us for ministry but to fundamentally change us into the image of Daddy. And as we come to a close tonight, there is an empowering to embrace that I want us to pray over one another tonight. Pastor Danielle, come on up here with me, Pastor Robert. And I want to call this the grace of change.